Hello and welcome to Cabin Fever Fables. I'm Sarah Hunt from indie publisher Saraband and today I'm joined by Ian Maitland who's launching his new book, a thriller with some very timely themes. Ian has a long writing career behind him in journalism as well as non-fiction books on mental health. More recently he's turned to writing fiction dark, gripping and sometimes quite disturbing crime thrillers. Previously, Sweet William and Mr Todd's Reckoning, which have been described by Geoffrey Wansell in the Daily Mail as splendidly creepy and by Jeff Noon in The Spectator as Conjuring Madness from the Inside Looking Out, a brave book. This new one is called The Scribbler, Readers of the Sunday Times Crime Club will have seen it in this month's newsletter, reviewed as exciting. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast. And could you start by giving us a few words of introduction to The Scribbler, please? This is the first in a series of books featuring the detective duo of Roger Gaither and Georgia Carey. Gaither and Carey head up the LGBTQ plus cold cases section at Suffolk Police and their job is to go over cases from the 1990s, the 1980s and earlier to see whether, using modern technology and processes, they can solve them. The Scribbler was a serial killer of gay men in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He left a telltale sign, a scribble on the torso, on all of his victims. He was never caught. Coming up to date, there has been a death at a care home in Suffolk. An elderly man, the Reverend Lodge, has fallen out of a second floor window. He was one of the Scribbler's intended victims in the early 1990s, but he managed to escape. Now he's dead, and there's that Scribble on his torso. Thank you. Sounds intriguing. And can you set up the extract you've picked to read for us and say something about why you've chosen this particular reading? I wanted to do a reading that kind of chimed with the lockdown and a scene early on in the book where Gaither and Carrie interview the care home manager, Mrs Coombs, and the doctor who attended the death, Dr Khan, seems to fit the bill. Mental health and related issues are a theme that run through my books and it's certainly one of the biggest crises during lockdown. The Reverend Lodge was suffering from dementia and living in a care home that was underfunded and understaffed and often at times overwhelmed. So this extract is, I think, a timely one. Gaither and Carrie have just spoken to the care home manager, Mrs Coombs, and are now questioning Dr Khan, who was at the care home just after the death and attended the scene. Brilliant. And yes, very timely. So take it away. D.I. Gaither turned to the doctor and asked, So please tell me what happened from this point. Dr Khan cleared his throat and leaned forward towards Gaither. I believed from the tone of the care assistant's voice that this was an urgent matter and so I came out of the patient's room, turned left and made my way down the corridor towards the care assistant and Mrs Coombs. He looked from one to the other to check that all were paying close attention. Gaither thought that he was little more than a puffed up buffoon sitting there in his peacock finery. I surmised quickly that the Reverend Lodge had fallen from his window and I led the way through reception and along and out to the path by the back garden. Sadly, the doctor dropped his voice in a professionally sympathetic manner. He had passed away. Cause of death? asked Carrie. The doctor smiled at her and Gaither and Carrie exchanged a glance, both thinking much the same thing at the same time. Patronising bastard. 
The open window, the nine meter fall, the concrete path, an octogenarian skull, osteoporosis in the bones, need I go on? Dr. Khan smiled at them and then added, in short, he fell and fractured his skull, severe hemorrhage, death would have been rapid if not instant to a layman, he would have been unconscious on impact. Time of death then, said Carrie. Ah, now that is interesting, the doctor replied. He was alone from 8.30pm until he was found at 10pm. From my professional assessment, I would put it, the time of death, closer to 8.30pm than to 10pm. Carrie turned to the doctor. Would you not expect a man falling out of the window to cry as he fell? Or after he'd hit the ground? No, not necessarily. He would have been taken by surprise. It would have been over almost instantly. He landed on his head and would have been unconscious immediately. Carrie pressed on. If he fell out of the window and landed head first, is it not unusual to fall head first out of the window? Again, not necessarily. He could have tripped over and his momentum and weight could have taken him to the window and out. He may have leaned out to see something that had caught his eye and he lost his balance. He had mobility issues. And let us not forget, he suffered from dementia and you cannot apply logical reasoning to illogical behaviour. Carrie then said, so everything you've seen, an old man with dementia who struggles to walk, crosses to the window, opens tight bolts and catches, a frail man doing all this, and then he goes head first out, and that's death by misadventure? The doctor nodded and smiled slightly. It would seem to be the case. Not suicide? He raised his hands, palms upward, and smiled blandly, as if to say it could be, but an accident suits everyone better. Or murder? The doctor laughed out loud and after a moment's pause, slapped his thigh as though it were the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Mrs Coombs laughed too, although her laugh, thought Gaither, was a nervous, uncertain one. Carrie ignored the look that D.I. Gaither gave her as she asked again, Could it be murder? Great reading, thanks. It's unusual to start with the death of a care home resident. You mentioned that the cold cases are gay victims whose murders in the 80s weren't investigated thoroughly enough. And now, in the present day, it's another marginalised victim, if it is murder, that is. An elderly man with dementia in an overstretched care home. It sounds as though the doctor has just wanted to tick the report off his list and move on. Really interesting ideas that, that go into your books, Ian. Let's take a step back then and find out a little bit more about the background to your novels and what goes into them. Your novels so far are all quite different, but there is a common thread running through them all of mental health issues. You've included everything from depression, anxiety, OCD, to degenerative dementia and even extreme psychiatric disorders. You've written non-fiction books on mental health as well. What is it that drew you into writing on this subject? Mental health's been a thread through my whole life really. Um, I mean I had like a lot of people a, a troubled childhood. My father um, bizarrely looking back brought his teenage girlfriend to live in the family home when I was I guess six or seven. And I think that was a really disturbing thing to me, uh, and even more disturbing looking back. So I was seeing a psychiatrist at the age of nine, and there were social workers in and all sorts of things going on. And I think looking back, I was a, a normal child in, in just a really unhappy, abnormal situation, and that kind of freaked me out. 
I've been fortunate though that I've gone on to have a happy family life. I've been with my wife Tracy for about 40 years now uh, since we were at school uh, and we've got three children. They all live nearby. Uh, the youngest Adam still lives at home and they've all got great partners and we're all really close. Even so, uh, a few years back our eldest son Michael went to university and suffered from anxiety and depression there. Uh, it was just uh, unbelievable really. We just assumed he'd be fine and happy and well. We never dreamed that anything could go wrong. Uh, but he had uh, anorexia and spent time in hospital and then five months in the Priory. So I mean it's really really heavy stuff. Horrendous for him and, and not good for us either. Um, I mean his life's back on course now and he's happy and good and well. And we are too of course. So, I mean, all of that stuff, fathers and sons and anger and frustration, guilt, despair, love. I mean, love's in there as well with Michael, lots of it. All of these really incredibly strong negative and, and positive emotions kind of feed themselves into my books. Oof, you've really been through the mill. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. This is the first of your novels to feature police detectives. Their jobs have changed a great deal over the years, certainly over the last 20 or 30 years. Nowadays, for instance, we're always reading that they're called on to deal with the front line of acute mental health problems, but there are lots of other changes. How did you go about doing the research for your police characters and, and all of the procedures? I think most of us who were around at the time will have an image of the Sweeney in our heads, the kind of macho, sexist, racist stereotype of old school policing. And I think that's uh, broadly accurate, really, looking back, Googling newspaper reports and all of those types of things. These days, uh, and I guess it's as much to do with changes in society as it is with new technologies and advances in DNA and all of that, we've got a much more modern police force processes and doing things by the book and health and safety and political correctness and so on. So the two leads in The Scribbler, Roger Gaither and Georgia Carey, kind of represent those two, I guess you'd call them extremes. Uh, Gaither's old school. He was on the force who failed to capture The Scribbler back in the late 80s and early 90s and carries a newly promoted DC full of vim and vigour. She's bang up to date with everything and she wants to crack on and, and solve these cases. Research-wise, I mean, you just read up everything you can on old cases, new cases, everything in between to try and ground what you're writing in reality. Uh, as far as the police stuff is concerned, I was really lucky. I've got a wonderful ex-copper locally called Neil and he read the manuscript and he put me right on what I'd not got uh, spot on. So, you know, that, that wouldn't happen. That would uh, that would go through a different process. That would happen a bit quicker, a bit slower and so on. And, and Neil's input was really invaluable to me and I'm very grateful to him for all of that. Oh, yes, it's brilliant that Neil was able to help so much. He was 32 years in the police, starting out with things like patrol officer and traffic officer and so on. He He ended up running a team dealing with sexual exploitation and human trafficking, so really grim stuff. He was also the LGBT liaison officer, so that it must have been very helpful as well in all of your research. So just as in real cases, your characters take us to some pretty dark places. Do you find them very uncomfortable to write? And do they even keep you awake at nights? 
Uh, no, I sleep really well, to be honest. I think the thing is that in real life, I've been to some pretty dark places, uh, both with my childhood and then later on with Michael. So writing dark stuff, I mean, it's fiction after all, is really easy compared to that. And uh, of course, it's as dark as I want it to be. So I don't go too far down certain roads, children and stuff like that. I, I couldn't bear to write about those types of things. Uh, and I think also there's a, a thin, but there's a really strong thread of pitch black humour that goes right the way through all my books. So some people see that and some people don't. Uh, but it's there and it's probably what keeps things uh, on an even keel for me when I'm dealing in the guts and the gore. Very true. I think humour really helps the reader as well. Your last novel, Mr Todd's Reckoning, was pretty dark with some really pitch dark moments. But there was humour in there too. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Mr Todd's Reckoning is a story of a father and son, both unemployed, living in a small cramped bungalow together during the longest, hottest summer on record. So there are stresses, there are strains and there's tension and one of them's a psychopath. Uh, that's coming to TV as a six-part series uh, with Abbott Vision, the guys behind Seamus and Cracker. And I mean, it's just incredibly exciting to think of my story coming to life as a TV drama. It's absolutely brilliant news about the TV. I can't wait to hear more about that. So in the meantime, we've been talking about mental health and obviously that's a massive issue right now with everybody dealing with their own problems coming to terms with the lockdown, whether they may be relatively minor or quite serious issues. Um, speaking as someone like yourself, you're a writer, you're used to being in most of the day. Do you have any tips or can you explain what you do to keep your own mental health in good shape? Well, I've been a writer now for more than 30 years. I work Monday to Friday, nine to five up in uh, an attic. Uh, so it's kind of lonely at times and you have to deal with uh, sort of issues that uh, relate to that. But I guess over 30 years, I've kind of got to know how to look after my mental health well. So I always have a structure to my dad, kind of timetable, things with uh, to-do lists and checklists, all of that is uh, really important to me. Uh, so it kind of keeps me in a framework, keeps me busy, but not too busy. Uh, I always start and end my day with exercise. Uh, so pre-lockdown, I used to swim uh, for an hour at the local leisure centre. Now I walk my dog, Dolly. Uh, I'm really lucky to live by the sea because we've got cliff tops and beach huts and all of that. And that's so, you know, so nice to work, walk in those types of areas. Uh, at the end of the day, I also do some gardening. I'm trying to put a little kind of meadow in the corner of our garden with uh, wild flowers and hopefully bees and hedgehogs and frogs. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of that lately uh, and really enjoying it. Uh, lunch times, I always take half an hour off, half 12 to 1, switch off completely, read a newspaper or even a football book, something like that, uh, just to take my mind uh, away from the work that I've been doing. Mornings and afternoons, I usually take set breaks, maybe catch up with friends by phone or by email. I use social media, but I try and be careful with it and limit it to maybe 10 minutes morning, 10 minutes afternoon. I think it's really easy to get kind of sucked into all of that and then find that you've lost two hours and you're not going to get your work done that you wanted to do. 
for me, the most important thing in a day is that I have a target, a number of words that I want to write. For me, that's about a thousand words, which is roughly the equivalent of a scene. Um, so that's, you know, I think it's important that you don't set too high a target or too low. You don't want to be going too fast and getting stresses and strains, nor do you want to be sort of mooching about and just fiddling with Twitter and Facebook all day. So for me, a thousand words is right. And if I've got that sort of figure ready to edit the next day, then I'm happy. I'm a happy man. Well, that's really helpful advice. Having a structure uh, routine so that you set yourself some goals, but you're not too busy and having breaks and exercise. The sea air sounds amazing. And I can just picture you in the garden with bees and hedgehogs. It's lovely. So thank you for those tips and also for the other questions that have really shed light on your work. Um, let's just carry on now to the the regular feature of this podcast, the Corona questions, to start off with. What are you reading at the moment? I'm currently reading Payback, which is the latest Claire McCleary book featuring uh, Maggie and Wilma. Uh, and I really love Claire's work because it's a clever mix of, of gritty, gritty material. And it's also very funny. Uh, Big Wilma's just such a character. Uh, so I'm really enjoying that. Lovely. Thank you. And um, the next question is about cooking. I know for some people cooking is getting a bit more back to normal now that stockpiling is over and so on. And other people are desperate to to start going back to eating out sometimes and so on. And sadly, of course, there are people who are struggling to get hold of food because they're in such dire straits financially. But this isn't the place really to elaborate on that. So, Ian, what are you cooking this evening from your store cupboard or supplies? Uh, well, at the moment, we're eating potatoes, lots and lots and lots of potatoes. When the uh, lockdown started, we were really good and we didn't stockpile or do anything. Uh, when I was up at my greengrocers, he'd tell me there was going to be a shortage of potatoes, so I should stock up. Uh, and he then pointed to a bag uh, of potatoes, which if I lifted it was about as heavy as a corpse. It was that that heavy. So I staggered home with that. And of course, there hasn't been a, a shortage of potatoes at all. And we've just got this huge bag in the corner. And so we're ploughing our way through those baked potatoes, you know, whatever, fried potatoes, just lots and lots of potatoes. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's not just all the potatoes, because I know plenty of other people who would love to be dining most days on potatoes. But it, it's just the fact that you measured the weight of the potato sack in corpse terms which surely only a crime writer could do anyway um who would you ideally invite to dine with you if you could choose anyone i'd invite my family uh so myself and tracy my wife we've then got three children michael sophie and adam and they've got three lovely partners uh georgia glenn and sophie and we'd all come round, and we'd sit in the orangery with all the sunshine streaming through and we'd eat potatoes, lots and lots of potatoes. That almost sounds like a bit of a Norman Rockwell scene with people all happily sitting around a dining room table with mounds of potatoes. It's a lovely image. Um, lastly, 
Have you recently seen any strange advice or not, of course, as bad as injecting yourself with bleach, but tips about corona or any notable associated behaviour? Um, no, not really. I think the only thing that I've seen that could be described as notable behaviour is, is is a man walking up and down Felixstowe High Street trying to give potatoes away. Uh, lots and lots of potatoes. <laughs> Watch out for the random potato flogger. Well, thanks very much, Ian. We've gone all the way from some very grim mental health history to spots galore. And the very best of luck with the new book, The Scribbler, which is just out. To keep Ian's family in chips before they run out, please do buy your copy from a local bookshop or Ian's local bookshop, which is Woodbridge Emporium. Or you can buy one directly from our website too, saraband.net. That's all for today's Cabin Fever Fables. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Sarabandbooks. Feel free to get in touch.